From Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Nehemiah 4, 1. Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and of the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite, who was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity nor and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And I'll pray. God, I thank you for your word. And we just ask, God, as we look at it together, that we would have your heart and mind um, on these things. That we would think, God, from the mind of Christ, not our thoughts, not the world's thoughts, not even good people um, among our brothers and sisters, Lord, but just from you and your word. That you would teach us and that you would rule, God, over our hearts and minds. And so we thank you, God, for your ministry to us. And we do ask, God, that you would speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Nehemiah are all about opposition and many of the various forms that it can take. Chapter 4 and 6, the forms of opposition are external. They're being opposed from without. And in chapter 5, it's problems and oppositions that are taking place from within. There will be um, reasons for the opposition. We will talk about over the course of the next um, three Sundays the reality of the opposition, the resources that we have against the opposition. All of these things are important. But probably nothing is more significant in all this discussion than just to simply to realize that God's people are going to be opposed that you can be doing the right thing the right way, and it's a good thing, it doesn't harm anybody, and you are going to be opposed by the enemy. They were simply building a wall. What in the world could be so bad about that? It is, it is purely defensive. It is not offensive. Nobody is going to be hurt by them building this wall, and yet they're meeting stiff opposition. It's been observed that there's probably nobody that suffered more opposition than Jesus did. And he was crucified, not because of any wrong that he had done, but because he was good. Simply because he was good, they nailed him to a cross. I don't remember any classes in seminary on opposition and what you would face in the ministry, but I've been in the ministry now for um, quite a while, and I've faced some. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I really think I'm just as nice as Joel Osteen. And... Um, <laughs> I don't think I smile maybe as much as he does, but, you know, I, how, could, how could Joe Osteen be any nicer than I am? And, and yet the opposition at times has been amazing um, and perplexing. How can a nice guy, you know, be, be reviled so much as what I am? Um, well, you know you could be nicer than Jesus, and the Bible doesn't call us to be nice. Never does. It tells us to let our speech be with grace. It tells us that we should be kind-hearted and tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as we've been forgiven. We understand that. But there's nothing in the Scripture that says, be nice to one another. And Jesus um, spoke the truth. And at times it was overly blunt. It was not um, softened with tact. And I understand Proverbs says, the wise man makes knowledge acceptable. Um, Jesus is wisdom. He is the very wisdom of God. And he only spoke what was true. And it was not always acceptable to those who heard what he had to say. 
That doesn't mean that we should go out of our way to offend people, but at times it even appears that Jesus went out of his way to offend people. Um, it's, an, it's amazing how he lived his life. Um, I know that we can be more committed to being nice than what Jesus was. And in the process of going out of our way to tiptoeing around everything controversial, never wanting to say anything controversial, and that in itself you're going to be attacked, right? And rightly so. Like Joel Osteen. If anybody tiptoes around controversy, that man does. And he gets still attacked because he's tiptoeing around controversy. So like this, this is about building a wall. And they are going to be vilified and attacked in every way imaginable. Had they not built the wall, they still would have been vilified and attacked. So choose your poison. And God would have us to obviously obey him and leave the consequences to him and not spend our lives trying to pacify people who are at their core antagonistic to everything that we represent. We should pray for them. We should not want them to remain enemies, and we should not act in enmity toward our enemies. More to say about that later. Um, but we should just face the reality. We serve a different king, a different God. And we are aliens in this world, strangers. And the moment that you say yes to Jesus, a bullseye is painted on your chest. At that moment, all you've done is just say yes to Jesus. And at that moment, you become the enemy of Satan. The name Satan means adversary. And he absolutely hates Christians. So when you tell your child, receive Jesus because God loves you, we don't tell them, and you've just made an enemy, a powerful enemy who is the God of this world. But it's true. So God raises up Nehemiah to build a wall, and they have started building the wall. They're operating with great unity in chapter 3. Um, things are progressing well. And now in chapter 4, it came about when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall. He became furious. And if that's not descriptive enough of a word, and very angry. <laughs> well, I don't know what the difference is. He's furious, and he's very angry. And he mocked the Jews. I think it's instructive that Nehemiah, who wrote this, maybe Ezra wrote it, but I think Nehemiah probably wrote Nehemiah, that he says, and the Jews... Not the Israelites, because they weren't even being called Israelites. They weren't given that dignity, because the nation of Israel has been destroyed. They're just simply Jews, a derogatory term. And they embraced that derogatory term. That derogatory term came out of Egypt. They were the Hebrew people. And the slang, the derogatory um, name for Hebrew was Jew. And the Jews have embraced it to their credit. What have they done wrong? They're simply building a wall. Well, that wall represents a barrier and a distinction between those inside and those outside. That wall is saying those inside are good and those outside are bad. In chapter 2, Nehemiah went so far to say to the enemies, he says, you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. That's what a wall means. You are on the outside. We are on the inside. We have nothing to do with you. So it was infuriating, this wall. It was a statement of condemnation and of judgment just by the fact that they had a wall. Not because they were saying anything unkind or doing anything that wasn't nice. They were building a wall. But that wall said, we're not you, and you aren't us. And we want it to stay that way. The walls that they were building were purely defensive. 
So if the outside people had no intention of hurting them, the ones that are inside the wall, then why do you care that there's a wall? Right? It's just a wall. Why would it bother you? It is purely defensive. Unless you want to hurt us. And then that wall bothers you. Opposition to the wall was irrational unless there was something else, and there was. Opposition to what does no harm to others proves that the goal for those who oppose it is not their self-preservation, but the destruction of those who build the wall. This was a literal wall. The same principle is true today in things that are not literal walls. The desire to make sure your kids get the education that you agree with is a wall. Their desire to limit government is a wall. And you can just go on and on. You go, why would that bother people to say, as a parent, I have the right to educate my children as I desire? I have the right to expect that my children would hear in school what I support and not what will undermine me as a parent. Why would that bother anybody? It's a wall. It's defensive. Well, it bothers because the goal of those who oppose is not neutral. They want to destroy. The adversary comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's the goal. And so for all this, my lifetime, as I've heard the opposition say, just tolerate us. That's all we want. That has never been the goal. Just take down the wall and say we're all the same. That has never been the goal. Because now we tolerate, we've taken down the walls, and the problem, the adversary is meaner than he's ever been. And he's saying, we want you to be what we are. We want no distinction whatsoever. What we are is what we want you to become. And we want you to be telling your children that we're good. There's nothing wrong with us. So Sanballat, as he comes against Nehemiah here, he starts out with anger, fury, and mocking, laughter, ridicule. And as I said a couple weeks ago, J. Vernon McGee says, that's just how it starts. And we think, oh, I'm, I'm being mocked, I'm being laughed, I'm being so persecuted. No. People that have been persecuted, they go, are you kidding me? That's not persecution. You've seen nothing yet. To be laughed at, to be mocked, to be scorned, grow a spine, stop being a snowflake. I mean, that's, that's nothing. That is nothing. And seriously, I mean, anybody that now, you know, you can't, it's not just ministry, you can't be a school teacher, you can't be a boss, and you are so afraid of simply giving any confrontation, any rebuke, any correction to anybody because the reaction is so over the top. You've just killed them. You think you just assaulted somebody to say, could you come in on time? Could you try to do a little bit better at your work? Could you maybe not complain every minute? Could you maybe have a good attitude once in a, just once a week have a good attitude, and I'll keep you here. And you think that you have done the greatest affront, the greatest sin against a person for simply trying to get them to do their job. Heaven forbid that you should laugh at them. Oh, my word. I remember going, going to one of the torchbearer schools to teach one time. This was years ago, and there was a student there and he obviously had spent a ton of money on his hair. But I'm telling you, I kid you not, he could not have made himself look more like a hedgehog than, and I'm just going, and I just, and I just started to say, how much money did you spend to look like a hedgehog? And I, I didn't say it, but I thought, they'll kick me out of school, they'll never have me back, he'll be talking to his parents, I'm going to be in trouble. The guest speaker called me a hedgehog, and I'm going, you know, if you're going to look funny, then you ought to be able to laugh about it. But I didn't say that. <laughs> and, I, and I don't want to make too light of this. I know when we were kids, we, you know, at least you know, when I was a kid, we always heard our parents saying, Stick and, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Lie, 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 lie. 
Words hurt. We understand it. Nobody likes being laughed at. It is a big deal. But it's the entry level of persecution. It gets much worse. Much worse. So what do you do when people are laughing and mocking at you? What is the God-given response? Well, for Nehemiah, it was prayer. He didn't talk to Sanballat. He didn't try to straighten things out with Sanballat. You can't straighten things out with a Sanballat. Okay? You can't do it. So get over the thought. Sanballats are going to be Sanballats, and Sanballat was Sanballat till the day he died. There is no record that Sanballat ever became a believer. He never turned his heart. He never became friends. They never sat down and had a meal together. It wasn't possible. You can't make friends with all your enemies. You need to realize that. There are enemies in this world, and they're going to remain enemies. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try, you know, you know pray for them and, and hope that things can get better. But don't be pie in the sky. We've got to be realistic. And there are going to be people who oppose us just out of the sure meanness of it. There's nothing you've done wrong. If you've done something wrong, then the scripture would say you need to make amends. Ask for forgiveness. Get it right. But you're going to be opposed like Jesus was just simply for righteousness' sake. There's nothing to apologize for. There's no reason to go and talk to that person when they hate you simply for righteousness' sake. What can you say? Nothing you can say. And if you try, it'll just give them ammunition. It just gives them a stick to beat you with. I have experience with this. Would you please forgive me for coming across like an idiot, like a jerk. You didn't come across like a jerk, but you feel like you need to say the words because they've been offended. And all you've done is given them a stick to beat you with. Nehemiah didn't do that. Really. Nehemiah didn't say, please forgive us, Sam Ballard. You know, we've gone about this the wrong way. They've done nothing wrong. That's not self-righteousness. That is the truth. Okay? And I, you've heard me say before, as I read and study the life of Jesus and the life of Paul, those guys were attacked left and right. They offended people all day long because they spoke the truth, and they spoke the truth in love, and they never once asked for forgiveness, either Jesus or Paul. Had they done something wrong, I'm sure they would have asked for forgiveness. No doubt about it, but they didn't. Paul stood up to Peter in a public venue, did not go to him in private first. And he didn't do anything wrong. Peter had sinned publicly, and Paul rebuked him in the harshest ways publicly. And he did nothing wrong. And he did not ask for an apology. Nehemiah prays. Listen to his prayer. Verse 4, hear, O our God, how we are despised. He's not overstating this. Return their reproach. They're reproaching us. Let this be reap, what you reap, you've sown. Return it onto them. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee. For they have demoralized the builders. And that's what they're after, to demoralize, to take away the strength, the heart. And they were being successful. Nehemiah could walk around and see it. There was dejection. Their heads were laying. What are we doing? They're right. What kind, what, we're not wall builders. There's not a stonemason among us. What do we think we can do? It was being effective. Nehemiah saw it and he said, God, turn it back on their own head. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that how we're supposed to pray? This is called imprecatory praying. Did you like that word? There are imprecatory psalms, lots of them, where David, man, you just love those psalms. God smashed their babies against the rocks. You know what? I mean, that's all, it's all through the psalms. 
But here's the thing. When David or Nehemiah were praying, God returned their iniquity on their own heads. They were praying according to the, to the law of Moses. Because God had made a covenant with the people of Israel that says, well, those that bless my people will be blessed and those who curse my people will be cursed. We weren't given that promise. And we are not allowed to pray the way that Nehemiah was praying. We're given specific statements that are exactly the opposite of what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah was praying according to Scripture as an Israelite under covenant with God. The Bible tells us, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Jesus said, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Not me and Nehemiah. For your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not what's going on with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah wasn't wrong. He was praying according to the promises of God, that God will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. But we are under a new covenant. And the new covenant says we are not a nation. We are a people of God. But we are not a nation. And as a people of God who, have, who are part of every nation on the face of this earth, we, have, we are like salt within that nation, light within that nation. And salt and light is going to be despised. It is the very nature and character of salt and light. Salt burns in a wound. And light burns against the eyes when a person's living in darkness. So don't be surprised. Whole different thing. And so when the world reacts to the salt and to the light, don't be surprised. Pray for the world. Pray that they would receive the salt and that they would turn from darkness to light. So what do they do? They pray. In verse 6, the first word, so. So they built the wall. What is the enemy after? Yes, he wants to kill us. But short of that, because he can't, unless God should permit, what he wants to do is so discourage us that we stop trusting God and stop walking in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10 that God has saved us and prepared good works ahead of time for us that we might walk in them. The devil knows that. And he wants us just to become so defeated and so discouraged that we just throw in the towel and say, I don't care, I'd rather live like the world and not suffer than be contrary to the world and suffer for it. The devil wins. So understand that's what he's after. I've started now trying to say when I officiate a wedding to pray for this couple, pray for these young people because the forces of hell are arrayed against this young marriage because they are. The devil wants them to turn against each other and to throw in their towel and just say, what is the point? If I knew it was going to be this hard, I would have never gotten involved. Nothing could be worth it. See, that's the devil. And he wants you just to quit. But they didn't. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height. Amazing. For the people had a mind to work, and that was God. In the midst of the reviling and the mocking and the ridicule, Discouraged as they were, they kept working. They didn't stop. Good for you. 
Well, now the, the attack ramps up. No more is it going to be just mocking. Verse 7, now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, that they, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So now it's been ramped up. Now you've got all the enemies coalescing together for the same goal, get the work of God stopped. Enemies doing the same thing today. We have more enemies arrayed against us than we've had, you know, against the church in maybe 100 years. It's not just an isolated enemy here, an isolated enemy now. Now it just seems like everything is standing against us. And they want to destroy. They want to do harm. Isn't it amazing? I've watched very, very little news since the election. But man, even what was happening before the election, the rejoicing that was taking place over people's property being destroyed, of people being ripped out of their cars and beaten, jumping all over cars and terrifying people, and people are rejoicing because it needs to be done. You're sitting in a restaurant, minding your own business, and being verbally assaulted, and sometimes even physically. And many people are rejoicing over this. This is nothing new. We're just seeing it here in the United States like we've never seen it before. So what do they do? See, now they're, they've got this whole array of enemies against them, all conspiring, all united, all to destroy them. Now it's become a physical threat of violence. What do you do? Well, if you're a Canadian Mennonite, you're a pacifist. And you just hope the police will come to your aid. Right? It's the truth. Because you don't, should not, it is not Christian to do anything else than just pray and hope the police come to your aid. So we prayed, verse 9. We prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. And as he's going to go into the detail of this, every man is going to have a sword strapped to his side. And they're going to have, as many people have described it, a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Well, Charlie, that just like imprecatory praying is good for the Old Testament because of the Mosaic covenant and the promises that God had made to Israel... Well, now you've, and that, but that doesn't apply to the New Testament in the same way setting up a guard and carrying a sword does not apply to the New Testament. If you're a Mennonite, then that's where you come from. You're, you would say that that does not apply today, the right of self-defense. I'm not a Mennonite. This is really hard. I get it. We have a security team at this church. They are armed. I've heard of churches that have started putting signs out on their front door saying, we are armed. We will not be victims. Wow. Some people may have a problem with a church having a security team. Nehemiah would not have. But again, is this just Old Testament? Was this something that only the Jews could do because they were a nation and not something we can do? So I would make a couple points on this. One, our governments give us in this country the right of self-defense. I don't think it's their right to give us this right, but they acknowledge that this is a basic human right, self-defense. And again, not to pick too much on Canada, but that's the country I know best outside the United States. 
I've had Canadians tell me that they no longer have the right of self-defense. It is illegal in Canada to defend yourself, at least with a firearm. I don't know. But here in this country, it is not illegal. So you're not acting contrary to government. So you can't appeal to Romans 13 and say, Romans 13 says obey your government, and at the same time say self-defense is wrong. Because in this country, self-defense is something government sanctions. One of the things that really gets me, and this is another point under self-defense, is to me personally, it appears to be cowardice to refuse to defend myself or my family, but to call 911 and expect somebody else to do what I'm unwilling to do. To me, that speaks of cowardice. Why would I ask a police officer to risk his life for my family if I am not willing to risk my life for my family? You start working through these things when you're just a child, especially if you go to public school. When I was in the fifth grade, I played Little League Baseball. And my next younger brother, who was in the third grade, was on the same team with me. We all went to the practice field early. We got there ahead of the coaches. There were 15 boys on the team. Two of the kids were so big, two brothers, I called them Mountain One and Mountain Two. Great kids, great team. And we parked, my brother and I, we parked our bikes right across the street at the elementary school where they had a bike rack. Well, I look over, I'm kind of keeping an eye on my bikes, on our bikes, and there's a kid who's taken my brother's bike out of the bike rack, and he's about to pedal off with it, stealing my brother's bike. And so I ran across with my brother, and I grabbed the bike, and I stopped the kid, and I go, what are you doing? He says, I'm stealing this bike. <laughs> well, I said, it's my brother's bike. You can't do that. And he goes, well, I am doing it. And he goes, what grade are you in? I said, I'm in the fifth grade. And he turned to my brother, what grade are you in? He says, I'm in the third grade. And he goes, well, I'm in the seventh grade. Whoa, you know, so, so, so what are you going to do about it? elementary school kid. I'm a junior high school kid. So I called all the team over. Hey guys, come over here. So all 13 boys ran across. Now he's surrounded by 15 kids. All of elementary school, but it's 15 to 1. And um, he goes, and I said, guys, this guy's trying to steal my brother's bike. And the guy said, and I'm in the seventh grade. All 13 boys ran back across the street. <laughs> Unbelievable. And so I'm standing there with my brother again going, because he's in the seventh grade? So he goes, there you go. I'm taking the bike. By this time, he'd gotten off of the bike, and he's standing there in front of us. And I'm going, okay, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Honestly, it never entered my mind. I'm just thinking... A wrong is about to be done, and the only way to stop it is physical. And how can I go home and tell my dad I let somebody steal the bike because they said they're in the seventh grade? <laughs> that would not have been acceptable. And so I said, you can't take the bike. He goes, I will take the bike. Talking's over. I hit him in the stomach. Boom! As hard as I could. He doubled over. And it was like my brother and I were sharing the same brain, and we both came up on him, upper cup, boom. <laughs> At the same time, we both hit him in the face. He ran away crying. And he said, I'm going to go get my little sister to come back and beat you boys up. <laughs> Funny story, I know. Um, I tell you, maybe I'm just being carnal, but I feel a lot better about that situation than those times when I did nothing, when I was witnessing evil. Something in me says, you could have done something, therefore you should have done something. If you have the power 
then you have an obligation. Isn't that what we would want? If you, see, if you knew that your daughter, your wife, was being assaulted, and you knew men could have done something, but they didn't, because all they did was call 911. I'd be mad at those men. You should have done something. The right thing when you have the power is to do something, to stop it. One of the most famous sayings we've all heard is all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And sometimes evil can only respond, will only respond to physical force. The only thing, I shouldn't put it that way, but, but every time evil has stopped in this world, it has been because good men stopped it. And they met force with force. There have been a couple of occasions we know in the Bible where God just simply annihilated the enemy and all Israel had to do was stand by and watch. God can do that. Sometimes He does. But most of the time, as in this, God did it, but He used men with swords. So look at what it says here. Nehemiah says in verse 9, we prayed and we set up a guard. In verse 14, he challenges the people and he says, when I saw their fear, I rose up and spoke to the nobles, to the officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and, and fight for your brothers and your sisters and your daughters and your wives and your houses. Remember the Lord and fight. No contradiction. And then in verse 20, and whatever, pla where, whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there with your swords ready to fight. And then what it says, our God will fight for us, but through us. They were saying, on the one hand, we do not have the strength or the ability. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to step forward. Patsy and I were driving through Kerrville one night, and she didn't see it. And I looked over, and just, in, just to, in, in that blink of a moment, guy standing there, boom, hits this, his girlfriend in the face with his fist. My word. And just instinctively, I slammed on the brakes. I did a power slide, and I, you know, and I'm, and I come ripping up in my truck into this parking lot. And then I'm thinking, I'm an old guy, and I don't have a gun. What have I just done? And I roll down the window, and this guy, first he's scared. He's, he's expecting to see some gun come out the window. Don't have one. Just my gray head and my bony finger, and I'm going. And so he, you know, I said, get away from her. And she's going, it's okay, I'm okay. I said, no, this is not right. I will not leave here until you go where there's light, and he is away from you. And he's ready to crawl in the truck after me. But it was the right thing to do. And he responded. Didn't, couldn't have, could have gone differently. I understand. I didn't say it was a smart thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. To stop it. And to trust that God can intervene using me. Should I have just gone by and prayed for that girl? I don't think so. These people were not able to fight this kind of enemy. But they believed that the will of God was to fight and to trust that God would fight for them. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39, do not resist the evildoer. If he slaps you, strikes you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other. That Matthew passage actually gives a very important detail that's not, I believe, in the Luke passage. I believe it's in Luke where it just says, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, then turn the other cheek. But in Matthew, it says, if anybody strikes you on the right cheek. So then if you look at what Jesus is talking about, and I, and I talked about this when I talked, uh, spoke, preached on Matthew a couple years ago, you can't hit somebody with a fist on the right cheek you will hit them on their left cheek, not their right. To hit somebody on their right cheek, you have to backhand them. 
So that's not an assault. That is an insult. So Jesus is simply saying, if somebody insults you, do nothing about it. Just let them continue to insult you. That's what we see in the first part of Nehemiah 4. They're being insulted. A fox could jump on this wall and knock it down. That's an insult. They weren't being assaulted. Now in the second half of the chapter, there's a threat of physical assault. Do not resist him, the evildoer. Does that mean I can't put up my hands? Does that mean I can't run away? Does that mean I can't call 9-1? Does that mean I can't tell my children when they're little, do not let anyone touch you on your private parts, and if you do, then you should call for help? Because that's resisting evil. What about resisting the devil? He is the evil one. And James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So taking all those other thoughts into mind, I do not think when Jesus said, do not resist the evildoer, he was talking about physical attack. I think he was merely talking about being insulted, mocked, ridiculed. Let it go. Count yourself blessed. It's a different matter when it comes to being attacked. Because again, if, he's not, if, he's not, if you can't make that distinction, then just to simply put your hands up and block the blows is resisting the evildoer. Would anybody say that's right? You can't put your hands up? You can't call 911? Don't think so. And a final thought on this, and again, it, it's appealing to the Old Testament, but we see that God gave Israel the right to defend itself. When under Esther with Mordecai and Haman was about to, to practice genocide and annihilate all the Jews on the face of the earth, God turned that around by giving the people the right to defend themselves. God did that. And here with the nation of Israel, they had the right to defend themselves. So this is my point. Whether it's Old Testament alone and strictly the Old Testament, you cannot argue that self-defense is contrary to the nature of God because God allowed it in the Old Testament. Is it allowed in the New Testament? Separate question. But you cannot argue that it's contrary to the nature and spirit of God because God sanctions it in the Old Testament. Just like you cannot argue that all war is wrong. When you see God sanctioning war in the Old Testament, some wars are wrong, but you cannot argue all wars are, are wrong. Sometimes it's wrong to defend yourself, but you cannot argue that on principle self-defense is wrong because God sanctions it in the Old Testament. This statement is made in verse 10, and it's written in my Bible. It's printed as a, as a quote or as a poem. And it seems to be that Nehemiah is quoting directly from what the people are saying as they are under threat of attack. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. It's almost as though this is a song that is being sung as they go to work. Not like the seven drawers singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go. Okay, This is a completely different kind of song. This song is, our strength is failing, there is much rubbish, we are unable to rebuild the wall, Hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> totally different kind of song here. These people are discouraged and ready again to throw the towel in. But what they're saying is true. See, it's okay. It's, it's not just negativism for the sake of negativity. It is true. Everything they're saying, their strength, the burden is great, their strength is failing, there is much rubbish, and they are unable in and of themselves to rebuild the wall. This is why Nehemiah doesn't refute this. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. All of these facts are true. Sanballat doesn't go away, Tobiah doesn't go away, the conspiracy against us doesn't go away, it's all, and we're not able to build this wall, it's all true. 
but we have a God. And we can live and survive and even thrive in the midst of opposition because we have a God. They were never attacked physically. The enemy heard about it, and they lost heart. How often does that happen? We don't even know how often this happens. When there is evil ready to act, but the evildoers find out they're ready to respond, and the evil never happens. Nothing, we didn't, they didn't need to do anything. Nobody got out of sword. Nobody got hurt. But there was just the reality. They are not going to be sheep to the slaughter. They are going to defend themselves, and that was enough to keep the evil at bay. I think that happens more than we will ever know, that just the thought these people will defend themselves is enough. I think I was in the ninth grade, and I don't know why it happened, probably because ninth graders don't have brains. Um, but I somehow got in my head that it would be a good idea to box another ninth grader. Head and shoulders taller than me. But I knew that we were both low on the totem pole of social acceptance. And, um, and big kid, muscular kid, but I figured it can't hurt if, I, if he beats me up. You know, I'm still bottom of the totem pole. And if I happen to win, then I move up a few ranks. And so... Yeah, I'll box a guy. And so we went over to, on the appointed day to somebody's backyard, and there was half a dozen boys watching. We put on boxing gloves, and this kid just tore me up. I mean, his arm reach was twice mine. And so I just stood in close, and I just covered my head up, and he just, you know, he just, just pounded me, must have hit me a hundred times. And I peeked up, and I saw a little, you know, maybe he was catching his breath, I don't know. Boom! Upper cup again. And man, I, and I just no, almost knocked him flat on his back. And so he, he, he took a few steps backwards and then came up again. All the guys were watching, laughing. Oh, that's great, man. And so, da 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 He's just beating all over me again. One more time. Boom! I hit him up underneath the chin. Well, I never say anything about it. As far as I knew, I lost. I mean, the kid hit me 200 to 2, you know, and, and um, you know, the scorecards would have said I lost. Well, those kids all went back to school and said, I beat him up. Well, all of a sudden, people are walking up to me, little bitty Charlie, and they're going, we heard you beat that guy up. We heard you boxed him, and you won. And I'm going, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know. And, but man, my ranking went way up. And I like that. But that doesn't... That's not a reason to become aggressive and to become a bully and to walk around with a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, it can work. But that's not what God's calling us to. I'm not preaching a sermon here. Get physical, get aggressive because it works. I'm saying this should be the last resort. But there are times when it appears to me that God would say, Prepare to fight. Your marriage is worth it. Fight for your marriage. Whatever it takes. There are women who need to change friends because all their friends do is tear down their husbands when they get together. Fight for your marriage. There are men who need to find other forms of entertainment. Because the entertainment that they use takes them away from their home at minimum. And at worst, it's defiling everything about their thought life. Fight for your marriage. We are under constant attack. Fight for your children. Fight for the people of faith. The last thing that Nehemiah says is, we're all going to arm ourselves. We're going to keep on building. We're not even going to change clothes at night. We're going to lie down and sleep in our work clothes because they're also our fighting clothes. And I'm going to blow a trumpet whenever there's an attack and come running to the sound. One way that you can fight, that you can resist the evil in the evil day, 
is to tell people you're under attack. Tell your brothers and sisters. Tell your wife. Tell your husband. Children, tell your parents. I'm under attack. I don't think I can continue on. I feel like just walking away from everything. Sound the alarm. Blow the trumpet. Pray for me. Help me. And body of Christ, run to help. Not run away. Run to the battle. And do what you can to help. I do not feel adequate to counsel anybody about anything. But how can I run away when somebody says, would you help? What can I say? What can I do? Nothing. Just like these people could not build a wall. But God can. These people couldn't defeat the enemy. But God can. And he uses his body, the people, to do these things. And sometimes we don't even know. Got a man in torchbearers that has just announced that he's stepping down from his position because these last, this last year has been so incredibly difficult. He has faced opposition from without and opposition from within, and nobody knew how hard it's been for him. And he's quit. Tragic loss. No, no immorality or anything, but he's just saying, I'm done, I can't do it. It's just too hard. We're grieved. It's a good man. Early in his ministry, he's part to blame. He didn't sound the alarm. None of us knew. He kept it all to himself. Didn't tell anybody, I'm really struggling. Would you pray for me? Because the number one defense against the enemy's attack is prayer. And you can't pray what you don't know about. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the victor, and you have crushed the head of the enemy. And yet, at this time, you've given him not complete free reign. We thank you for that. But he is still the God of this world, and he is still immensely powerful. We have no strength or power against him. And he is seeking to devour. And we are his targets. And I pray, God, that we would just know your grace and your strength to come to you. Not to stop the work that you've called us to. Not to step away from our marriages, our families, our responsibilities. Not to abandon the faith. But, God, to come to you and cry out, help. Thank you that you will fight for us. And I pray, God, that we would be weak and humble enough to announce to others we need prayer and that we would be faithful to come to their aid, to battle on our knees, and when necessary, to battle on our feet for our brothers and sisters in their time of need. In Christ's name, amen.